Welcome to the Mortification of Spin. I'm your host, Carl Truman, professor at Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia, pastor of Cornerstone OPC Church in Ambler, and angry opponent of creative arts pastors everywhere. <laughs> and I'm Todd Pruitt. I'm the teaching pastor at Church of the Savior, uh, which is in Wayne, Pennsylvania. And uh, there are plenty of things I'm angry about as well. But uh, Carl, why don't you uh, kick us off by uh, a rather interesting um, thing you found uh, recently by just noticing what Christians tend to uh, shop for these days and how you can help maybe some of our listeners uh, get plugged into the mainstream of, uh, of the evangelical subculture. Well, it's a pretty amazing 12 months in many ways. We had Ed Young's Pastor Fashion website. <laughs> We've seen the resurgence of uh, skinny jeans yes. and uh, heavy-rimmed glasses among the young hipsters. And then uh, recently, I noticed that there's now a Christian fashion show where you can quote model for Jesus being put on in Florida. It seems to me that so often Christian interaction with culture simply involves a Christian reproduction of the world's culture, mm -hmm. but in a somewhat inferior and more tacky form. Right. I would use the analogy of the Eiffel Tower in Las Vegas and the Eiffel Tower in Paris. The former looks like the real thing, but it's obviously of inferior quality, and given the choice, you want to be in Paris, not Las Vegas. What do you think, Todd? Well, I would agree. And, and of course, Las Vegas, though, gives us lots of parallels. You've got the Pyramid at the Luxor uh, Casino. Now, I haven't been to Las Vegas, Carl. I'm sure you have. I have, actually. Oh, well. Stayed see, in the that, Flamingo. That was my <laughs> suspicion. Isn't that, uh, isn't that the one that Bugsy Siegel uh, started it all off with? That it is the one that killed? Bugsy Siegel founded. I was actually speaking to a Korean seminary about Martin Luther, so I didn't get much of the <laughs> so Bugsy Siegel. So a Korean Siegel seminary at the Flamingo in Las Vegas with, with Martin Luther. It's about as surreal as having a it's pyramid about, in Las Vegas. That's, that's a, that is outstanding. I'm happy to hear that. I think you're right, though. I, I think that this Christian fashion show is just one more example of how Christians are wanting to create a sort of culture of their own. So if the world has a fashion show, we can have a Christian fashion show. If the world makes movies, we can make Christian movies. And I mean, I don't know how Kirk Cameron, frankly, keeps up with the demand um, at this point, because there are quite a, a few uh, Christian movies coming out. Now, they're generally straight to DVD. But I did hear now. Now, are you ready for this? I did hear that they are rebooting the Left Behind movies. That's... Did you hear about this? Me? Where are you? Ma'am? Is everything okay? It's my husband. He, he's disappeared. You know what? I bet he just slipped off to the restroom while you were asleep. Would you mind checking, please? And take this. I think he's gone off naked. Dozens of seats, empty. Patty, it's a big airplane. People are probably in the lab. I'm telling you, they're not here. They're not anywhere, okay? Their shoes, their clothes, their classes, crazy. They're all left behind. The people are gone. I, I'm speechless. <laughs> <laughs> they are rebooting the Left Behind movies and, and, to make things even more bizarre, um, talks are going on with Nicolas Cage to play the lead role in the rebooted Left Behind movies. Well, if it terminates Nicolas Cage's career, I, I guess it wouldn't be an entirely bad thing. <laughs> well, you know, I, I, again, my, my, my thought is it will give um, evangelicals 
um, evangelical pastors uh, one more opportunity, uh, just like they did at the Passion of the Christ, to say this will be the most significant evangelistic opportunity now of the 21st uh, century um, with Nicolas Cage carrying the water. So could be... Uh, could be interesting. Yeah. I mean, to make a serious point about all this, I think it points us towards uh, the whole idea of vocation Mm -hmm. for the Christian. One of the things that I've appreciated from reading Martin Luther and looking at the Lutheran tradition over the years is that for Luther to be a member of society did not necessarily involve you producing a specifically Christian approach to everything under the sun. For Luther, being a good member of society meant that whatever you did, whatever you could do legitimately, some professions were not legitimate, but whatever profession you could do legitimately, you were to do it to the glory of God. That's what made it distinctively Christian. It was not that you had to produce an inferior version of what the world does with Jesus tacked on to the end. You should be as good as you possibly could be and to do it for the glory of God. One of the great things, I think, about that approach is, one, it, it gets us out from under what I consider to be the, uh, the arty, chattering, middle-class view of the Christian mind that so often prevails in Christian circles, where when we talk about the Christian mind, we talk about Christian interaction with culture, what we're really doing is talking about Christian interaction with arty, middle-class things, things that people with money and time can do. How does the Christian mind apply to the person who's employed to clean the toilets at the railway station, sweep the streets? Do they not have a Christian mind? Well, of course they do hard as it is and easy as it is for me to say as somebody who has a job that he enjoys if you sweep the streets to the glory of god then you are a christian street sweeper Mm -hmm. you are doing it in a christian way you don't need a specifically christian theory of street sweeping you don't need to use a broom that has been designed in a specifically christian way you simply do it for the glory of god so the discussion of culture and how christians uh, relate to culture and understand culture can actually go beyond whether or not you've seen Black Swan with Natalie Portman. Uh, absolutely. Okay. And I yeah. think there's a good question as to whether a Christian should see right. Black Swan with Natalie Portman. I have not seen it, but I gather. Well, it is the feel-good movie of the year. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, it was quite awful. But uh, <laughs> oh, I see that you have seen it. I have then, seen so. it. Okay. And it is okay. quite <laughs> awful. I get the picture. Yeah. <laughs> I suppose I I could. Uh, be uh, more culturally informed if I'd said I'd loved it and appreciated the nuance, but the camera uh, angles and exactly the, yeah, it was yeah. quite the plot construction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Give me. Um, I felt the same about Teenage Ninja Mutant Turtles. <laughs> some years ago, so. Oh, there's some fine, there's some fine things in that movie though. Now you mentioned Martin Luther. Okay, so uh, you're you're a, a, a Luther guy. You, you know, you have a book on Luther that costs I, I think like three hundred and fifty dollars from Amazon or something like that. I think I don't it's have, worth twice that. I, uh, it's, it's a disgrace how cheap they sell these things. Sure. For. Well, I don't have a copy of that book because I don't have enough money to buy. Um, to buy that book, me being a lowly pastor. Um, of a in, mega church. Of, yes. Yeah, and not a famous author um, who goes to Las Vegas. But, um, I, I, okay, so I had a question. I want to know if this is apocryphal or not. Did Martin Luther say or write, if you're never accused of antinomianism, then you're probably not preaching the gospel? Did he say that? I've never read that in Martin Luther, though I have seen it in Martin Lloyd-Jones. It's, oh, okay. it's, I think it's one of those statements that is relatively common within Protestantism. Mm-hmm. And it's certainly, I think, a, a true statement to this extent that clearly the Apostle Paul right. 
was vulnerable to that accusation. It makes it very clear in, in, in Romans that he's being accused of that and, and is wanting to distance himself from it. So by definition, if you're preaching the gospel as the Apostle Paul preached it, right. you're going to be vulnerable to accusations of antinomianism. And was this not an accusation against um, Augustine as well? That I don't know. Well, <clears throat> it was. Well, you're the church historian here, Todd, so I'll bow to your superior knowledge. I appreciate that. I can see my pink slip at Westminster being put in the mail round about now. If I had an English accent, everyone listening to this would believe me. Um, so, which, by the way, do you want me to read your lines too? I, I would. I was, you know, I wanted to to go down that road a little bit. Just how many extra points you get simply for your accent over here? But you already know that. Yeah. You know that about America. That you, we're going to yield ultimately. To your opinion, I have to prepare twenty percent less for a sermon <laughs> to have the same effect here as back home in the United Kingdom. Right. right. Well, okay. So, so on on the charge of antinomianism, uh, okay, we've got we've got a bit of a dust up right now uh, going on in the Reformed camp um, over the issue of sanctification, charges of legalism. Uh, charges of antinomianism on the other side. Um, some of the debate has been kind of friendly. Some of it's gotten kind of testy, but it is an important topic. And as a pastor, and you're a pastor as well, uh, there are huge implications for this because people in our churches really do care uh, about their responsibilities before the Lord and, and are they going to live a Christ-like life. They really do care about yeah. this. And so what do we tell them? Do they get three free sins? Um, are are in some cases are we are we conflating justification with sanctification? Um, how do we want to weigh in on on this current dust up because it's very fresh right now? Yeah, and first of all, my my first comment would be that this is a significant debate. It's being treated as so many things, as you know, a discussion among friends, the way mm -hmm. we can all agree to differ. Well, no, I'm not sure that we can on right. this one because it makes immediate practical difference. If you're the pastor of a massive mega church and you never actually engage with real people mm -hmm. in any difficult pastoral situation, you pay people to do that, right. then you can live in this theoretical world where, you know, you bat ideas around and there are never any consequences. This debate makes a difference. If you've got a, a, a congruent who's beating his wife up, what do you say to him? Mm -hmm. I think your answer to the sanctification issue shapes how you respond to the man who's beating his wife, shapes how you respond yeah. to the teenager who's getting addicted to internet pornography. These are significant issues that impact real lives. And it's not enough simply to tell somebody, you know, you're a magnificent ruin. Jesus plus nothing is everything. Yeah. Go away and carry on as you're doing right. at the moment, but rejoice that Jesus has done it all for you. That's not enough. And of course, Martin Luther, who's often used in this debate, right. he came to realize that was not enough. Uh, Luther is a tricky guy to use theologically. He lived a long time. He wrote an awful lot. He was making it up as he goes along to the extent that his theology changed the pastoral landscape and created problems and issues and situations that had never been seen before. If you build your theology of justification stroke sanctification, Luther would not have liked that word, uh, on his writings pre-1525, 
then you're not going to be addressing how Luther himself addressed the problems that that very theology created in 1525 and beyond and forced him uh, not to repudiate his early theology, but to supplement it, to rethink some of the emphases and some of the ways he expressed himself. And so, how how would how would we describe to someone uh, the difference or some of the primary differences regarding sanctification, uh, the the Christian's responsibility, if he has any, to the law, uh, the differences between a, a Lutheran view and, and a classically reformed view? How significant is the difference, and can and can someone who is reformed um, gain much from a Lutheran in regard to sanctification? I think the, the, a, a, a classical reformed person can certainly find some things in Luther that are extremely helpful. Uh, the emphasis upon the unconditional gospel, the theology of the cross. Luther prefers the term theologian of the cross. Mm-hmm. It's, it's always tied to the quality of the person. But the theology of the cross is very important. When it comes to to the broader picture, though, of course, one has to to reflect on what do you mean by Lutheran? Well, ultimately, uh, one's looking at somebody who adheres to the Book of Concord, the Lutheran Confessions. And I have to say the Lutheran Confessions contain the third use of the law. The Lutheran Confessions are not as far from the Reformed Confessions on the issue of holiness in the Christian life as those who just grab a couple of quotations from the early Luther or from the commentary on Galatians out of context and slap them down on the page would have you believe. Another aspect, of course, of this uh, uh, controversy, or you would say controversy, just translate that for our listeners out there. (laughs) Another aspect of this controversy is that some of the prime movers in what one might call the antinomian camp are Presbyterian ministers. Hmm. They subscribe to the Westminster Standards. Westminster Standards, very, very clear, it seems to me, on the importance of sanctification, on the importance of imperatives in the Christian life. If you, if you really think that Luther nails it, early Luther nails it, and he's much better than the Reformed, then guess what? You should be a Lutheran pastor. Mm-hmm. You shouldn't be taking your money from a Reformed denomination and teaching a kind of quasi-Lutheran right. antinomianism. That's breach of vow. Right. That should be called out. It's not happening in my denomination, so it's not my job to call it out. But that should be called out by the statesmen in these denominations. Yeah. And, and for Romans 6.1 to really be meaningful for us, uh, that means that sin does somehow impact our relationship with God. And this has been a part of some of the exchanges going on on the internet among some well-known and and respected Reformed pastors. Uh, This has been part of the question, is are Christians totally depraved, or is that simply a condition for the unregenerate. Do I, do I have a responsibility to confront and deal with sin? Do I need to be always killing sin, mortifying sin? Or is what is being prescribed by some, and this is what I fear, is that what's being prescribed by some sounds a lot like the let go and let God stuff that I was weaned on as a child in my evangelical Southern Baptist church. It sounds a lot like that. It does seem to have some odd connections with the let go, let God stuff, with the 
the lordship debate that right. John MacArthur, of course, engaged right. uh, others over some, some decades ago. Yeah. Uh, the early reformers, so one of the things that has puzzled me is the way there's been this opposition created between the early reformers, as if we can generalize on mm. this issue anyway about the early reformers, and the Puritans, you know, the Puritans are the bad guys yeah. uh, in this. If you look at an early reformer like William Tyndale, he has a, a high place for what we now call sanctification. He would have called it outward justification. Mm -hmm. High place for what we would call sanctification in the Christian life. And for him, the works operated as, a, as an affiliative thing. Sanctification was affiliative. In, term, in, in other words, it allowed uh, the believer to increasingly realize the richness of their relationship with God as Father. And I think that's an important aspect of this. In the same way that if my own kids are they perfect? No. When they behave well, my relationship to them is different from mm -hmm. when they're rebelling, talking right. back to me, slapping me around, right. metaphorically, of right. course. Um, so there is an affiliative aspect to this. I would also say biblically, one of the things that's interesting about the New Testament is the New Testament simply doesn't always say to, to people, you know, just look to Jesus and rest in right. him. Ananias and Sapphira... That story is in the New Testament mm -hmm. for a reason. Right. It's a frightening story. Right. We have a God who is a consuming fire. That's a statement right. in the New Testament. Right. These things are not there for no reason. And Luther, in his post-1525 uh, Luther, Luther became very worried that were those within the Lutheran church uh, who were getting rid of repentance entirely, right. that the gospel had simply eliminated all need for the law. And all you needed to do was preach, if you like, your magnificent ruins and Jesus has done right. it all. All you needed to do was preach Jesus plus nothing is everything. Right. Luther stood absolutely against that. It divided Lutheranism. Mm -hmm. uh, those who claim Luther unequivocally as their you know, founding father on this one, I think they reveal their ignorance right. of Luther's later theology and indeed of his ecclesiastical biography. Yeah. And the New Testament is very, very... Uh, familiar with the language of striving towards holiness. Paul was not shy at all about um, using athletic metaphors, um, militaristic type metaphors, the language of yeah. striving towards holiness. He wasn't yeah. shy about that. So the, the apostle of grace, body. exactly, yeah. the apostle of grace. And, and so for us to, to talk about sanctification, I do love the term outward justification, but for us to speak about that and that the law really does have this third use uh, should not then garner a charge of, of legalism or, yeah. or else we're going to have yeah. to charge Paul with legalism. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, I think one of the things as I, you know, as we wrap this up and, and look to, to what's going on, I'm always interested as a historian in what's the bigger picture here? What's the, the ultimate significance of this particular debate? And I think it has, there are two points of major significance. Um, one, I think it speaks volumes about how theological controversy is being conducted these days. And maybe we can come back to that in our, mm -hmm. in our next program. And secondly, I just wonder if with all of the ethical pressure that's beginning to bear down on Christianity and the wider culture, this may not ultimately be seen to be a move to make Christianity more acceptable, 
to take the uncomfortable bits right. out of Christianity in order to allow us to capitulate more effectively mm-hmm. to the wider culture. And in my mind is homosexuality. Right. How do you counsel, how do you pastor somebody who's struggling with same-sex attraction? Mm-hmm. That, I think, is where the rubber will really hit the road on this debate. Uh, and that becomes not simply pastor an individual, that becomes part of the wider Christianity with culture versus culture kind of debate. I agree. That's good. Well, we've trashed the Christian fashion industry. Um, we didn't uh, say anything about boy bands this time. We and didn't. It was a particular love of yours, I Todd. was disappointed uh, in that. But I think we successfully put to the sword the modern antinomians. We can now forget that and move on. We've obviously <laughs> dealt completely adequately with that. I think, and, uh, I think we yes. We can now look to the future. I think they'll listen to this. They'll change their mind. And uh, there'll be complete unity from this point on. Well, thanks very much for listening to The Mortification of Spin. Uh, I'm your host, uh, Carl Truman. As I say, great opponent of Christian fashion shows and arts pastors everywhere. And I'm Todd Pruitt. uh, And I'm I'm just looking for the next big uh, Christian boy band. If we can uh, get that worked out, then I think that uh, the the problem of Christianity and culture will be solved permanently. I think you could be on to something there. Jesus paged me on. Thank you.